Okay, our scripture this morning is 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9, and then again, 10, chapter 10, verse 20 through 27. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his first son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of ben Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And, the Saul, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Elaine. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the way you have been at work throughout history. Uh, and specifically to your people. God, thank you for your persistence in pro continuing to proclaim your word. Though we are fallen and often straying, you continue uh, to send your word to your people. So God, thank you now that you've done the same, just as you did through the prophet Samuel and uh, through the kings. God, you've now given us your word and allowed it to be in our language. God, may it be profitable to our hearts even now. May he draw us to you, and may we glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. In seventh grade, I liked a girl named Laura, and it was a big deal. It was a big deal. We, uh, we had started hanging out in, a, in one of our classes and talking and realized we had so much in common. Our birthdays are on the same day. I mean, you know, how could that happen? And we both had dogs that were both Shetland sheepdogs, like miniature collies. I mean, basically, we were soulmates. There was just so much we had in common. 
And uh, so, you know, we started noticing that we were talking a lot and people around us started noticing. And, and I, I don't actually remember how, <clears throat> there, there's some gaps in my memory of how all this happened, but somehow we, we became official, boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever my 12-year-old version of us called that, you know. And, and so I don't remember exactly how that happened, but I do remember like pretty soon, like immediately when that happened, all of a sudden everything became extra awkward for me. I could not talk to this girl. Like we had been friends sitting in class, but now I, I could not think of anything to say to her. And so we'd sit there and I would just like, you know, say hi or pass in the hallway. And it just, it went, I don't know how long this went on for. It probably was only like a week or two. It felt like an eternity. This like impossible time. I couldn't, I couldn't get the guts to call her. I, I didn't know any, I just could not talk to this girl. The part I do remember very specifically was sitting in the library and one of her friends uh, approached me in the library and said, hey, Philip, you know, since you, know, you, can't, you and Laura aren't talking, she said, this isn't going to work. Y'all, she doesn't want to be your girlfriend anymore. Like, her friend came and dumped me for her. Like, that's, that's how bad it was. And, uh, and it hurt my feelings. It, got, it hurt my feelings. And it didn't, it didn't feel good. And, and rejection never does, does it? Being rejected, whether you are a, a seven-year-old awkward boy who just doesn't know how to talk to girls, or, or any other form, rejection never feels good. Whether that's uh, being you know, you told you didn't make the team, or you didn't get the job, or your loan wasn't approved, it's hard not to take those things personal. Rejection always hurts. It always hurts our feelings. Uh, our rejection is at the heart of our passage today in 1 Samuel. And one probably could argue that rejection is at the heart uh, of this whole book of 1 Samuel, that this this passage is kind of the, the linchpin that gives us the, the idea of what, what this whole thing hinges on, or the lens through which to see the, the whole passage, the whole chapter, the whole book, I mean, of 1 Samuel. First, a couple weeks ago, we started in this book and, and talked about how it makes this big, important transition in the, in the lives uh, of the history of the people of Israel, from a time of being ruled by judges to a time where they are led by this monarchy, by this kingship. And it's a pretty bumpy path, including today's part, which is very, very bumpy. And what we see in, in our pa- passage that, that Elaine just read for us is that God's people rejected God as king. The rejection happens not to, in the story to, to people, but to God. Now, don't worry. You don't need to pity God. He's not an awkward 12-year-old who doesn't know how to talk to girls. Uh, God is fine. God did not get hurt here uh, in the sense that he, he's, he's doing just okay. But the rejection that we did toward God, God that we as people did toward God, hurt us. It hurt us. Rejection always hurts. And when we hurt God, when we reject God, we're not hurting God. We're hurting ourselves. My question for us today as we look at their rejection is where are we rejecting God? Where is it in our lives that we are turning our back on Him, that we are, we are rejecting Him? And if we can see that, we can probably see some ways it's damaging First Samuel 8 opens with a, a kind of catching up on where we are in Israel's history. It kind of covers probably 15 to 30 years or so as Samuel the prophet is getting older and his children are getting older. And as he gets older, he has, he has delegated some of his responsibility to some of his children who are now judges in Israel. And they did not walk in his ways. They were not following God like Samuel had. They were wicked and they were taking bribes. And so the people, specifically the elders of Israel, have come up with a new leadership structure. They have a new idea that this isn't working anymore with Samuel. Instead of having a prophet or a priest, they want a king. Verse 5, we read, 
uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Behold, you are old. That's a good way to start something to motivate, motivate uh, somebody, isn't it? Behold, you are old, they tell Samuel, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now you may or may not hear that as a, a strange request. It may not strike your ears as odd, but if in case you missed how bad that was, God clarifies for us just two verses later when he tells Samuel, They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, here's what the Israelites just committed, the sin they just committed. They, in asking for a king, they were forgetting they already have one. His name is Yahweh. He is the Lord who reigns over all things. So by asking for a king, they were replacing God. They were trying to put somebody in God's place. And what I want you to know today is that replacing God is rejecting God. Replacing God is rejecting God. Anytime we turn to something and ask it to do for us what only God can, whether it be a person or a job or uh, some material good, something else out there, anything that we've said we want this thing to do for us, what only God can, we're replacing God. We're putting something in His place. And that is directly rejecting God. The Israelites do that in a handful of ways. I can see at least three here. And the first way they're replacing Him is they're just literally putting a king, trying to put somebody in His place to take His title. They're choosing an earthly human king in place of the divine king who is actually in charge. 1 Samuel 8, again, 1 Samuel, one of the main... Um, Literary things you see throughout is all, all kinds of things are put up right next to each other so you can see the contrast between them. First Samuel chapter 7 probably was 15 or 30 years before chapter 8, but they're put right next to each other so you can see just how different this is and how far the people have fallen in that amount of time. Back in chapter 7, they had gathered together. We saw this last week. They had gathered together for repentance, and the, the Israelites come out to attack them. They're, they're in trouble. And what do they do? Prayer is their only weapon. They asked Samuel, 1 Samuel 7, 8, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And He did. They, they asked for deliverance. They asked somebody to fight this battle for us. And God did it. A chapter later, they're struggling. They want help. And where do they go? Not to God but to an earthly king. Chapter 8, verse 20, this, this is the heart. This is why they want a king. Why do they want a king? That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They want somebody to win the war. They want somebody to fight the battle for them. That's not a bad thing. The bad thing is who they're asking to do it. They're asking a human to do something that only God can do. We may not realize it, but we too have a God who fights for us. We have a God who fights our battles. And yet so often we turn to anything else we can find to ask it or that person or that thing to fight for us. Many times we're not, we're not sitting back in our chair and, and pointing at God and pointing at something else and think we're, we're choosing in between the two of them. Many times what happens is when we come to a problem, we just ignore God altogether. And that's what the Israelites do here. They don't say, we want God to stop being God, and we want a king, an earthly king, to be king instead. No, they just don't acknowledge God at all. They just go running for an earthly king. 
Dale Davis is a pastor and commentator, and he wrote, We have a tendency to assess our problems mechanically rather than spiritually. Do you do this? When you come to a problem, do you just try to figure it out? Do you just try to come up with a solution? Do you just try to fix it? Or do you pray? God very well may use our prayer and our work together. God may, as we pray, then He comes and helps you, you know, take a step and that kind of thing. But many times we don't even pray. We don't even ask for help. We pretend like we can figure this out on our own and we don't need any help. We're looking for just an adjustment, a new technique, a connection with a person. We're looking to just do the right things. If we can do the right steps, then this will all just work out like it's supposed to. And yet we're forgetting that we are spiritual beings who serve a all-reigning spiritual God who answers our prayers, who hears our voice when we cry out for help, and He can fight our battles. Our problems are not mechanical, they are spiritual. We don't just need new structures or, sin, or, or systems in place. We need repentance. We don't need just a couple new habits. We need new hearts. The things that we need most are gifts that only God can give. And the battles we most need to win are battles that only God can win. Who are we relying on for help? Who are we depending on? Who is the king that we are looking to to fight and win our battles? God and God alone is king, and only he can do that. If you go back to Deuteronomy 17, which would have been 500 years or so before this, God had made provisions for the, the, kingdom of, the, the nation of Israel to have a king. So the desire to have a king in and of itself was not evil, not necessarily evil. But here in 1 Samuel 8, what makes it evil is that they are putting their trust, their confidence, their hope in this earthly king. We will win our battles when we have an earthly king. That's the logic in their minds. They're saying, this is who we're going to trust in. We're going to trust in this king. And God is saying, your heart, it's always a matter of the heart. The heart is wicked. Your heart, your desire, what you're passionate about here is not in the right direction. So many times we, we get passionate about good things. And it's good to be passionate about important things that matter in the world. For some people, it's politics. You know, following the, the latest political race, whether it be Congress or, or the presidency or or focused on everything that the Supreme Court does. For some people, it's um, the climate, you know, doing what we can to protect the earth. For some people, it's issues of race and justice. For some people, it's ministry, saying, I just live and breathe, and my mind is always going on ministry. We can be passionate about important things, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But many times, our passion leads over into worship, into saying the ministry, the politics, this is the king I'm going to serve. And my hope, my trust, my confidence is in this person, this career, this outcome. And the salvation I long for is for this election result or for this type of fruit in ministry or whatever else it may be. And we forget who sits on the throne. It is God and God alone. It's good and right to care about important things, but let not our important things become idols that we worship and we depend on as a source of salvation. Pray first. Then go to work and keep praying. And when you're done working, keep praying some more. As a way of saying, I know God and God alone can win the battle. God and God alone is king. They reject God as king when they replace him as king. And they reject God as king when they choose to blend in rather than be holy. Did you hear why they wanted a king? Where they came up with this idea? He says, they say in verse 5, Appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. And they reiterate again in verse 19 and 20, There shall be a king over us that we also may be like 
the nations. Perhaps the Israelites were sitting back and reading the newspaper and this kingdom, man, they got a king and they won that battle. And this kingdom over here, they, man, they won that battle and they have a king. Here's the solution. They all got kings and they're winning. We need a king. Maybe we'll win some more battles if we just have a king. But instead of reading the newspaper of current events, they should have read God's word, which says God is God. God is king. He is Lord. And he has called us to be distinct. He has called us to be holy. He's called us to be set apart, not like the nations. God called his people to be a blessing to the nations and a light to the nations. He never says be a copycat of the nations. He never says blend in with the nations. We are supposed to have an impact on the world around us, not be changed and transformed by the world to become more like the world. Again, having a king wasn't necessarily evil. It's not the idea that's bad. It's their motivation. They want to blend in. They, they don't want to be the tall blade of grass sticking up and then get chopped off. They want to just blend in and look like everybody else, and maybe things will be easier. They're worried that their nation looks weak to other people because they don't have a king, and they think they can solve their own problem. God had called them to be holy. He says, you shall be holy, set apart, distinct, different. As the Lord your God is holy, set apart, distinct, and different. And surely we can see that temptation all around us today, can we not? The world is pulling at us from every direction, it seems, to just be like the world around us. And that's not new. Every generation has that. It takes on different flavors or different ideas in different generations. But we are pulled to just give up the things that are foundational to us so that we can be more like the people around us and ruffle less feathers. When it comes to how, how we define success in the world, we, we're called, we're, so many times the, the world is pulling us to the American dream. If you just have this level of success, then you'll be somebody. That's not Bible. That's the American dream. So many times the world around us is saying, rest, Sabbath, you're, you're going to lose productivity. Just sleep a little bit and then get back to work. No, God's called us to take a break, to trust that God keeps the world spinning even when I'm sleeping. He's in charge. He's king. I'm not. Moral, social standards. Our world is eating at the fabric of what it looks like to be a, a nuclear family and to care about things that, that the Bible consider, considers crucial. How we define marriage, how we consider life and when life starts and how life should end. All the important things around family. The, the world is saying, the Bible is old. It's old. We need to move on. God's calling us to be holy, to be stink, distinct, to be different. The Bible, the, the, so many times we ignore things in the Bible like caring for children and immigrants, widows and poor. The Bible calls us to a very high view of the exclusivity to Christ, that there's only one way to heaven, there's only one way to be saved, and that is as unpopular as it gets in the world. The world tells you, no, 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 you can have Jesus or you can have whoever else as long as you're just a good person. That is not Christianity. That is universalism. We're called to hold on to holy and distinct beliefs, even if they are unpopular, not blend in. We do not want to have a king like the nations. We want to worship the one true God who is Lord over all the nations. And he is in charge. We, there's so many times that people are pulled into kind of a tribe mentality. People like me think this way about this, so therefore I think that. Without ever again coming back to the Bible and saying, what does the Bible say? How do I stand on the truth of the Bible? No matter which way the culture is pulling me, I want to stand on the Bible. 
Unity and peace are important and good and holy things. We're not called to pick every fight. Don't hear that. I'm not calling you to pick fights today just because you can. I'm calling you to holiness, to being distinct. And love and peace are also holy and distinct. God told Samuel to warn the people about what they're asking for. He says, you're asking for a king like the nations. Do you see what the people of the nations have to go through who are under those kings? Do you know what you're asking for? 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18 reads as a just big warning, like the big warnings that go on cigarettes. You know, it's like you can't miss the big warning. Like it's clear here, right, what you're getting into. He said over and over the word repeatedly here is take. This king is going to take things. They're trying to gain something. And he's saying, no, no, the king is going to take things from you. Listen to all the things he takes. He's going to take your sons to go to battle. He's going to take your daughters to go and support the war effort. He's going to take your animals and your fields to support the staff. He's going to take the 10% of your money and, and everything that was supposed to be going to God. The king is going to take that to support all the things he wanted to do. He's going to take all your servants and your resources and your flocks. He's going to do just about everything. He's going to take everything from you. Why? Because he says climactically in verse 17, you will be his slaves. You want a king who will go fight your battle? He'll go fight your battle, but you're going to be his slave because of it. And this sounds a lot like what the people grumbled back in the Exodus generation when they said, we want to go back to Egypt, forgetting that they were slaves in Egypt. And they said, we don't care. We want to go back to Pharaoh. So here they're asking Samuel, we don't care if we're slaves. We just want a king. They'd rather be slaves than to follow the Lord. We can re reject God by replacing God as our king. We can reject him by replacing, uh, what, trying to blend in rather than be holy. And we can replace him by choosing our own foolishness over his wisdom. We are stubborn people. Do you know that? Oh, you do. If you know that, then maybe, you, maybe you're not as stubborn as you think. No, no. no we, we are stubborn people. We are hard-hearted. We are hard-headed. And it is hard to get things in our minds so many times. God is saying, I've told you, and I've told you, and I've told you. I'm warning you over and over again. Are you listening? We can be so headstrong, so stuck in our ways, we get to the point where nobody can tell us anything. You know that about other people? You know those other people that you can't tell anything? Yeah, okay, well, sometimes that's us too, isn't it? Samuel warns us that one day they're going to cry out for help, and it's going to be too late. He's going to say, I put the king in place you asked me for, and now you are enslaved. Now you ask for help. And it's going to be too late. We're called to repent while there is time, to not be too headstrong, too stubborn, too focused on ourselves and our wishes that we don't see God's wisdom. Seek His will above ours. Trust Him over trusting ourselves. Let God be God. Let Him be King. And turn from trying to force His hand into anything. Recognize God is God. Israel does not do that. They do not heed Samuel's warning. And the Lord says something that just seems absolutely bizarre. He says it twice, verse 7 and 22. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people, and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Again, 22. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. God sees their sin. He sees their hard-heartedness. He sees that they are replacing him and rejecting him, and yet he gives them what they ask for. He says they're going to get a king, just like they asked. And that should make you nervous. It should make you nervous sometimes when God answers our prayers. <laughs> when your prayers are good, it's a good thing. But when we are sinning against God, sometimes it would be gracious for God to say no. Praise God, He said no to a lot of prayers, right? And sometimes God gives us what we ask for, 
as a way of disciplining us. And that's exactly what happens here. The elders have gathered together for this conference about getting together a king. Samuel says, this isn't a good idea, but God said so. So everybody go back home and we will wait for God to bring us a king. And the stories of, of 1 Samuel, like so much of the Bible, they're just told so well, crafted so well. So I want to keep telling you this story, but I want you to see this all the way through what happens with Saul. Our, our rejection doesn't stop God's providence. Our rejection does not stop God's providence. When Israel flat out rejected God's wisdom and His word and His authority, God didn't stop being in control. Even though God is granting them their sinful request, God doesn't stop being in control. It's not like He is shackled and says, well, I can't do anything now because now they've sinned and I can't, I can't be in control. No, no, He is still fully in control. Their rejection, if anything, makes God's work all the more clear. It kind of magnifies how much God is doing despite these people. Other than maybe when you had to list the... Uh, the capitals, when you're in elementary school and you've had Rhode Island, capitals, Providence, you probably haven't thought about the word Providence a whole, whole lot. It's a really good theology word, but it's not a Bible word. So I did want to tell you how I'm using that word that's right there. Yeah, our rejection doesn't stop God's providence. Um, Piper wrote a really short 700-page book uh, on Providence, but he does have a short definition. God's wise and purposeful sovereignty. I think that's pretty good. Sovereignty is God's control. But you could use your control for all kinds of bad things. So he clarifies, so when we talk about providence, we're not just saying God's in control. He's saying, we're saying God is wise, and he's using it for a specific purpose. He has a goal in mind. This is the kind of thing that we read about over and over again in the Bible. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, God says, I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Even when we sin, even when we reject God, God's in control. I want you to see that here in 1 Samuel. If you know a little bit of this story, you know Saul is not going to be a, a hero in the end. But this is how we get to Saul. Chapters 9 and 10 is how we get to the first king of Israel. Uh, all that comes together is just an incredible thing that God does all this um, that God makes all this happen. Chapter 9 switches from Samuel's saga with the elders to this, uh, introduces us to a man named Kish. And like these stories so often do, it's just an ordinary Israelite family. We learn this guy's from Benjamin. Uh, he's a man of wealth, and he has a, Saul, a son named Saul who is handsome, and he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. It's quite an introduction to a guy, isn't it? Handsome, and he's tall. But this guy Kish, uh, for some reason or another, could not keep up with his donkeys. They have gotten away. And the ancient world, that was a big deal. It was not just a, a minor thing that he had lost a significant portion of his flock. And so he sends out Saul and uh, one of his helpers, a servant, to go find him. So Saul and this servant go from town to town, and they're going looking for these donkeys. And over and over they go to a town, cannot find them, cannot find them, cannot find them. And it just so happens that they end up in the town where the prophet Samuel is. And the servant says, we should go ask the, the prophet, that should be our place to find help. And Saul says, that's a good idea, but we don't have a gift. We, sh we don't want to show up empty-handed, so we, we can't go to him. But it just so happens that the servant had brought along a, a quarter of a shekel to get him. So they say, okay, we're going to go see the prophet. And they go to town, and they meet a woman. And she says, wow, you got here at just the right time. It just so happens he's just about to go out and make a sacrifice. But if you hurry, you might be able to catch him before he goes. Lost donkeys, wandering town to town, shekel, timing, 
all these things that just seemed impossible circumstances. Samuel, we learn at this point in the story, had known that somebody was going to show up looking for donkeys. Samuel had been told by God, the, ne- the, the man who comes looking for donkeys, he is going to be the king of Israel. So Saul shows up and asks this man he doesn't know where Samuel the prophet is. And Samuel says, I'm, I am him, and I know what you're here for. You're looking for donkeys. And he's blown away, doesn't know why Saul, Samuel already knows that. But Samuel has it all prepared. He invites him to this feast, and he's already told the people to set aside the leg, which was the priestly portion of the sacrifice. And this is going to go to Saul, and his seat is all ready. And that night, they have a bed already prepared for him. And the next morning, he gets him all up, and Saul has to be totally confused by all these things going on. But he gets him alone, and Samuel anoints Saul with oil as a way of saying, this is the blessing of God. You will be the next king over Israel. To confirm that story, again, an, an enormous amount of details that just would be impossible all by themselves. There's going to be two men who are going to find you in a specific spot, and they're going to tell you that your donkeys have been found. Then you're going to run into three men, and they're going to be doing exactly these certain things, and then all these different details about them, and you're going to get two loaves of bread for them. And then you're going to run into these prophets, and the Spirit's going to come on upon you, and you're going to prophesy. This list of things that Samuel gives to Saul, it's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? 1 Samuel 10, 9, I love this understatement. All these signs came to pass that day. They all happened, just like Samuel thought it would. I hope this can be an encouragement to you, just pausing in the middle of this story, to realize God is at work in all the minute details of your life. Do you know that? God is not so busy with trying to keep Ukraine and Russia at peace and figure out China and Taiwan and figure out, uh, you know, racism or whatever else, that he doesn't have time for your, like, morning commute tomorrow. God, the same God who is Lord over all the kingdoms of the world, knows how many hairs are on your head. He numbered them. He has time for that. And God is at work in all the minute details of your life. I was reminded of that this week. Tuesday morning, I got here, and I got a call from a pastor I haven't talked to in probably a year and a half named Ronnie, who's a missions pastor. Love this guy. such a heart for the Lord. And I realized the last time I had talked to Ronnie was when I went to visit him at his office in Spartanburg, the church that he works for, to talk to him about how in the world we're going to send this family called the Cook family to the mission field. And I was like, Ronnie, I cannot believe you've called me this week. On Monday, the Cooks are moving to Mexico. When when you helped me at the beginning of this to figure out how we do this as a church, it's all come full circle. And you happen to call me this week where we're sending them out. And Ronnie just rejoiced over that, celebrated that with me. And then prayed over this, this trip and prayed over the cooks, even though he doesn't know them. And it was just such an encouragement to hear from Ronnie. That's how I started my week Tuesday morning. I was like, wow, I got to talk to Ronnie on the week that I get to, you know, we're getting ready to send the cook family. Thursday, no, I'm not, I can't make this thing, these kind of things up. Thursday, Aaron and Alex and I decided to get lunch together because he's about to move. And we pick a restaurant we've never been to before because if Aaron, you know, had heard a recommendation, we actually went to a different one that was a different location that was closer and we're ordering our food and somebody taps me on the shoulder and it's Ronnie, Pastor Ronnie. I haven't seen Ronnie in a year and a half. I haven't talked to him forever. He called me on Tuesday and he's standing there in the, in the line at the restaurant saying, Philip, what are the chances? I was like, here's, here's the guy we've been talking about. Here's Alex. Here's the guy I've been talking about that we're sending to the mission field. And so he prayed over us at the end of our lunch, just such an encouragement. And I'm not saying God's, you know, whatever else God may do with it. It was just, it was just a blessing to me to see God at work in the little minute 
decisions like when and what time and what day. We were supposed to go to lunch on Friday. We moved it to Thursday. I forgot about that part. Like there are so many things that just God is just so real and so much with us. Now, I don't want you to think that you've got to hyperanalyze every time you catch a red light or you spill your coffee and, you know, you don't need to analyze it and try to figure out exactly what God's doing, but just trust that God has a purpose in all the things of our life. He is with you. He is guiding you and directing you through all the details of your life. God has established the kingdoms and counted your hairs and numbered them. He's in charge and he's working things for his good purposes. God is at work. His providence is real. He is providing. He is caring. He is directing our lives. At the, the point of the story we're at, only Saul and Samuel would know the details. Only they knew the hand of God in all this. And so God continues to reveal his providence to all the nations. We read in 1 Samuel 10, 10, they come to Gibeah and behold, a group of prophets meet him, Saul, and the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. This is the first time Saul goes and does some kind of public ministry. God's spirit comes on him and he prophesies. And so people are starting to recognize God's at work in this man in a unique way. God is empowering him for the task ahead. Now, just a, one of the theological errors, people get confused here. God, this is not a picture necessarily of his salvation. It's just of him empowering for him for an event. And we could pick that up some other time. But it's, it's worth pointing out here that God never puts us into a task that he doesn't empower us to accomplish. God's spirit is with Saul to be able to do this work. Our rejection doesn't stop God's providence. God is still at work even though God can t God's people continue to reject him. So after all those assurances of empowering and, and, and helping Saul, he finally gets back home, and Saul calls all Israel together because it's time to crown a king. And if you, I, th I think the United States should go to this for our next election. Instead of casting ballots, they just cast lots. I'm kidding. Don't do that, America. That's a bad idea. But in ancient times, this was a way many times of discerning God's will. And it has the, the effect of randomness about like rolling dice. It, this seems totally bizarre. Like this seems like how in the world could this happen? It just so happened they put all the tribes up there and the tribe of Benjamin is taken out of all the twelves by casting lots. And then it just so happened that of all the families, all the clans of the tribe of Israel, uh, the Matarites uh, were chosen. And it just so happens that Saul was taken by chance, by, by, by the lots. And we, it's, this is a great evidence, Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is orchestrating what seems like a random thing to get the right man in the right place. And it, I think we get a little hint here that there's, just, there's more going on to this story. Because when they pick Saul, do you know where Saul is? <laughs> Nowhere to be found. Over and over again, God's people are showing their incompetence. Saul can't find the donkeys, and the whole nation can't even find the guy that was just chosen as king. They have to ask the Lord, where is this man? The Lord has to tell him, hey, he's over there in the baggage. Now, people are split over whether it was Saul's humility or being embarrassed or trying to run away from it. I don't know. It doesn't look good to me. It doesn't seem like a good thing. But here's what they do say about him. When they find him, they point out again, he is handsome and he is tall. He's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. That is, he looks like a good king. He looks like somebody they could trust. He looks like somebody who will be a better king. But as we go through 1 Samuel, we realize we should have paid attention right here. So I'm just giving you a heads up. 
We're going to meet another man later in 1 Samuel who's not described this way, who doesn't look like on the outside he'll be a good king, and yet proves to be a much better king. The people see this man who's tall and handsome, and they say, long live the king. If, what, what could God be doing here? If, if God's people are rejecting him, and he is sovereignly orchestrating all these things, why would God allow this request to go on? Why would God allow this? We should expect God is up to more than we realize. 500 years ago, we said Deuteronomy 17, God had made a plan for a king. And even before that, hundreds of years before that, uh, Genesis 49, God had told Jacob, there was a man Judah that would come from, a man that would come from Judah's line that would be a part of this king. So God had a plan for the kingship. And even though God's people are going about it in a sinful way, he is, he's working something out for his good, for our good and for his glory. 1 Samuel 10, 24 is the first time someone's declared king over Israel. It's the first time Israel has a king. And even though they got here in a sinful way, God is going to show how this is for his glory. God uses even our rejection for his glory. God's providence extends even over our sin. Even in our sin, he gets glory. This, this is the, where the monarchy starts, where the king Having a king starts in Israel, and it already is pointing forward to something incredible God's going to do through a king. God would one day raise up a king unlike any other, his own son Jesus, who would be called the King of kings and Lord of lords. And like God himself was, this king would be rejected. He would be despised. He would be looked down upon. Christians should, should see a foretaste of the Messiah here, even all the way back to, to, to Saul, who was anointed. The word for anointed is the word for Messiah. It's where we get Messiah. This one was anointed. But unlike, unlike Saul, Jesus was not tall and handsome. He was not one who looked like a king. The, people of the, the Jewish people of the first century were so upset because they don't want a king like that. They want a king who can rule and be in charge and fight our battles and overthrow the Roman government. And so when this man claims to be king, they say, we have no king but Caesar. And they give him over to Rome to be crucified. Again, a king is rejected. He is replaced. They say, give us Barabbas. You keep Jesus and crucify him. And in the most horrific sin in all of human history, the Son of God is crucified. The King of Kings is rejected. He is killed. He is murdered. It could not be a more grave sin than killing the Son of God. And yet, God is glorified through it. Our sin is paid for. His children are ransomed and redeemed. God saves his people through the most sinful act ever committed. God's glory will not be stopped. Even in our rejection, God is providentially at work. God uses even our sin for his glory. There is tremendous reason to trust God in reading the Bible and in reading 1 Samuel. In these chapters, even our sin doesn't stop God. God is at work. God moves hearts. God moves nations. God cares for individuals and He cares for whole groups of people. God is at work. He is worthy of your trust. And when the world pulls you to start looking like it, when, when things tempt you to say, this is going to be my king, this is what I'm going to worship, we come back to God's word and say, there is one God. There is one Lord. There is one king. His name is Jesus. And He alone will I worship. He alone will I worship. Do not replace God. Do not reject God. But worship God. Put your trust, your confidence, your hope in Him and rely on Him to fight your battles because He is King.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for continuing to be at work in our lives and continuing to be our Lord and King. God, we confess our hearts are drawn to so many other things as King. We want to worship so many other things, and yet you continue to show us your goodness and your grace. God, thank you that even in our sin, you have brought salvation. You have brought um, a way for us to know you. So God, continue to work. Continue to use us despite our sin for your kingdom and continue to sanctify us to make us more dependent on you. Lord, we want to lay before you even now uh, in, our, in our last moments as a part of this service. God, we want to confess before you things that we make into idols, things that we put in your place, whether it be people or jobs or ideas or whatever else we may be. God, we, we put things in your place and depend on them to fight for us. And so, God, we humbly come to you asking for your forgiveness and for your assurance of, our, of your presence and for your continued power to fight our battles. Lord, bless us as we sing. Draw us to you. Give us a clearer picture of who you are, that we may trust you more day by day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.